saying you need to do this. That's the thing, is that they're they're acting like there is a social good, that there there must be. There must be a social good somewhere in here. But seriously, what is it? Tell me what it is. Like maybe I'll reevaluate it if you can tell me how using this data is different from using all of the other data that's been collected about suicide prevention. This is Lock and Code, a Mauerbytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This one's going to take some time to introduce. Last month, the news outlet Politico exposed a data privacy scandal which, even in today's world of data privacy scandals, drew significant anger. Crisis Text Line, a national mental health support nonprofit whose volunteers help people through text-based chats, was sharing those chats with a for-profit company that Crisis Text Line spun off in an attempt to boost funding for itself. That for-profit venture called Loris AI received anonymized conversational data from Crisis Text Line, which Loris AI could use to hone its product, a customer support tool. And if you're thinking, wait, what? You're not alone. Let me explain. The thinking behind this application of data went a little something like this. Companies all over the world have trouble dealing with difficult customer support conversations. Crisis Text Line had trained an entire volunteer force on having broadly difficult conversations. What if the lessons from those conversations could be gleaned from the data trails they left behind? What if the lessons could be taught to a product? which would in turn help customer support representatives deal with angry customers. In theory, then, by feeding Loris AI the conversations between Crisis Text Line volunteers and the people they were chatting with, which, right, it it could be suicidal teens, it could be newly homeless individuals, survivors of domestic abuse, Loris AI could become the tour guide through any difficult customer support chat. With Loris, first you welcome the customer, then you offer to help, then you apologize, then you provide an action statement, and so on. And when you hear that distilled version of Loris AI's product, the the data pipeline that fed it, it feels almost mundane. But then you remember that this data, it's conversations from people in crisis. That's how crisis text line works. You text a number, you start a chat with a volunteer. You talk about whatever crisis you're going through or whatever difficult moment you're going through. You leave a record behind of what you talked about. And this isn't, let's be clear right here, this isn't metadata, right? We talk about metadata quite a bit on this show about, for instance, phone call metadata. That's phone call duration and phone call frequency and phone numbers dialed, but we're also careful to mention that metadata doesn't include the conversations. It's not the words you spoke on the phone. Today's story is about the words that you wrote. It is, again, about the content of those conversations on Crisis Text Line, a nonprofit meant to support people who do not feel they can be supported from their immediate network, whether friends or family. It's a nonprofit that is meant to listen to what other people don't listen to. 
maybe shouldn't listen to as determined by the person speaking or writing it into existence. I have a lot of ideas about this because something that none of you know, why would you, is that for six years I volunteered for a suicide prevention hotline, answering phone calls and text chats from people in crisis. And even today, I feel that those crises belonged to them. The people contacting us were in control of how they used that information, not us. Shortly after Politico's report came out, Crisis Text Line severed its relationship with Loris AI. It no longer shares conversational data with Loris. Typically, this would be the end of the story. But then something interesting happened. A member of Crisis Text Line's board of directors named Dana Boyd wrote a long reflection on how the nonprofit made the mistakes it did. And she called them mistakes. She actually asked people in the field to help answer some lingering questions that she is still working through and which you may have intuited my guest will try to answer today. But as to the broader problems at Crisis Text Line, as to how Crisis Text Line even got to a position where it shared anonymized conversations with its own for-profit spinoff so that a customer support tool could better handle difficult conversations. According to Dana's accounting, that was all the end result of a basic snowball effect. According to Dana, one of Crisis Text Line's biggest prides was its volunteer training program, the education and the lessons that were given to every new counselor who chatted directly with people in crisis. As a side note, to develop this volunteer training program, Crisis Text Line reached out to at least one suicide prevention hotline to get feedback on it, and we know this because we're speaking to someone who helped evaluate it for today's show. But back to the value of that training. As Dana wrote, Repeatedly, volunteers approached us as a board to tell us about the secondary benefits of the training. Yes, the training was designed to empower a counselor to communicate with a person who was in crisis, but these same skills were beneficial at work and in personal relationships. Our counselors kept telling us that crisis management training has value in the world outside our doors. Around this time, the founder of Crisis Text Line proposed building a revenue stream out of that training, maybe charging a fee to train non-volunteers in the corporate sphere, a proposal that was shot down. In tandem with this, Crisis Text Line was also setting up specific protocols and rules for sharing data with outside researchers. Basically, controls on how to anonymize anything sent to research groups that wanted to study Crisis Text Line's data. So, when funding was tightening up, Crisis Text Line developed a plan with three basic steps. First, apply the same data sharing principles already used when engaging with external researchers to instead share data with a for-profit company that Crisis Text Line spins off, Loris AI. Second, allow Loris AI to use anonymized Crisis Text Line conversations to train its product to better handle difficult conversations, which will position Loris AI to provide some new value to corporate clients. Third, ensure that Loris AI promises to share some of its revenue with Crisis Text Line so as to sustain the nonprofit's operations and responsibilities. But the surprise step forward to all of this was anger nearly every person who finds out. Today, to help us understand that anger and to dive into data privacy principles for crisis support services, we're speaking with Courtney Brown, the former director of a suicide hotline network that was part of the broader National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 
And interestingly, during her time with her suicide hotline network, Courtney consulted with Crisis Text Line on the evaluation of its volunteer training program in their first year. Courtney, welcome to the show. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Because there is so much to talk about, I want to just race into this uh, today. And I wanted to start actually just with a really basic question here, which is just how did you react when you first learned about Crisis Text Line's data sharing with its for-profit arm, right? That Loris AI. When I first heard about it, my reaction was complete lack of surprise. I'd been saying that something like this was inevitable since their founding and my initial consultation with them around 2013, 2014. Crisis Text Line sold itself, marketed itself as a nonprofit that would eventually be delivering useful data. And of course, this is going to happen inevitably. But I was surprised by the public reaction as being negative and was really proud of the surrounding community that responded negatively. You said that you had worked with them since 2013, 2014, and that you had always, it seems, kind of noticed that something was up. What, what were those things? Like, what experience did you have that let you be non-surprised? There were so many experiences I had in consultation with Crisis Text Line that put up red flags for me. The way that they were talking about their organization more as a startup than as a nonprofit was really confusing. And also the way that they were constantly acting like they were reinventing the wheel. They would express that they'd discovered this thing or were using this different approach when I recognized that these were approaches that suicide hotlines had been using for decades. And the suicide hotline I worked at already had a text line. And we also had a chat line. So we were doing this work for years prior. And crisis text line would frequently say that they were trying some new approach based on their data. When I recognized that the new approach wasn't based on their data, it was based on experts in the field giving them suggestions, experts like me and my team. That sounds like a like a pretty nuanced thing. So I want to see if we can get an example. Like what what do you mean by, you know, conclusions that they believe they had reached through data that actually had been found prior because of because of work from suicide hotlines? So one of the main pieces that they talk about when they're sharing the value of their data is that they notice in initial contact, initial conversations, early in the conversation, there's a high correlation between a person saying that they have ibuprofen or they have some method of asphyxiation or some other method of attempting suicide. And they, the Grace of Text Line, when they are going to any sort of news outlet talking about how important they are, they share this, that they discovered this. This isn't a discovery that they made. This is something that suicidologists and suicide researchers have known for decades because it's part of Thomas Joyner's transpersonal model of suicide ideation, which is that the combination of suicidal thoughts with a means to attempt is what creates the possibility of high risk uh, for a death to suicide. So they were observing this phenomenon that had already been observed and reconfigured and analyzed to actually be used to prevent suicides and acting like they were the ones that discovered it. I mean, I I just spent this morning, I woke up early and I spent some time reading every post in their blog, in their data blog. And every single post were things that we already knew in suicidology. 
every single post is them regurgitating the same sort of client-centered psychology that we found is effective within mental health strategy since Carl Rogers pioneered it in the 1960s. Like everything they're saying that they discovered is novel and like best practices with crisis support, de-escalation, and eventually customer support is based on humanistic person-centered psychology developed by Carl Rogers and Maslow. Like this isn't new, this isn't novel, but they're pretending it is because they have this big data set and they're acting like the data set taught them this when it's actually experts in the field. Yeah, I haven't combed through everything they've written, right? Uh, I'm so glad that you have. Um, But a lot of the things that I have seen and a lot of things that I noticed, they say whenever they, you know, popped up in the news was a lot of stuff like you said, like, hey, we found that if someone mentions, like you said, ibuprofen, then there's a, you know, and they quantify it, you know, with numbers. They're like, there's a 93% chance of suicidality, you know, or of high risk. And then there's also stuff like, I, I the CEO had said before, the former CEO, I believe, had said before that we found that if you say, if there's a combination of oral, sex, and Mormon, they're like, there's a high probability that you're questioning your sexuality. And... When I read things like that, the things that jump out to me are two things. One, I think the numbers are hard to believe, not because like, oh, those things aren't true. But I think anytime you get into the realm of 91, 92, 93%, when you're getting into to single digits, I'm like, how do you, what, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, how do you get there? Like, it just doesn't seem... I don't know what rigid structure allows for such firm numbers. But number two, I'm worried because I see like analyses based on conversations. It's like you would only know that if you've been combing through this, what I assume is enormous database of conversations. And from my knowledge, that's not something that I did, you know, like I like... I never accessed this enormous database. I, I never saw it. I, I wanted to move a little bit here, though, and, and understand what in your mind, right? Like, why is this type of data sharing that Crisis Text Line did? Why is this type of data sharing wrong? That's a really complicated question. And something that stood out to me when I was reading a bunch of pieces in preparation for this podcast was that there were so many different takes as to why this was wrong. Like everyone seemed to have a different opinion and everyone's opinion seemed to be countered very easily by another person, right? So someone would say it's wrong to keep all of these conversations in the first place, but I can say it's actually a really good idea to have these conversations on hand in case it turns out that one of your counselors is doing something really wrong. You know, at the suicide hotline, we could just overhear what our volunteers were saying and track whether or not they were saying anything wrong to our clients. But there's no person monitoring calls at Crisis Text Line. So instead, they would want to do quality assurance and make sure that any volunteers who were providing problematic support were either retrained or removed from service. That's important. So I don't think the actual retention of the data is problematic at all. And it's something that other organizations have been doing for years prior to Crisis Text Line's development. So, you know, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline had a chat function that they were keeping all of their conversations. Reno, which had the first text line in the country, they were also keeping all of their conversations. This isn't new. Mm, Okay. Then there's a question of having outside people 
examining this information or listening in or whatever. And that's also, I don't think, ethically incorrect. Crisis Talkline was really open about the fact that they were sharing their data with nonprofit researchers. And I can tell you that we participated in a lot of research at my suicide hotline. We had, in, in a, an attempt to try to increase funding for hotlines, we underwent a really huge <laughs> study of whether or not we were effective and whether or not we were behaving ethically, where the Rand Corporation came in and listened in on our calls. And that was for internal evaluation. And I thought that that was really effective and really noble that people were investing all of this time to make sure we were doing good work. So I don't think that other people examining the information or being exposed to people other than the texters themselves or the counselors is a problem. Where it gets tricky is that they were sharing this information with first a for-profit. Second of all, a for-profit that I have to clarify was founded by the CEO of Crisis Tax Line at the time, Nancy Loveland. And so Nancy, from the start, it seemed as if she were trying to build up a service that would have a lot of data that would be valuable to for profit. And the third piece is that this is a customer service organization. And let's be real about what customer service is. Customer service branches of corporations are really just using their lowest paid employees as pawns to prevent distribution of the services that customers want. So they're trying to use this data from crises to figure out how to placate people who are upset that their order got damaged in shipment. That's what they want to use it for. And what what is funny to me is just, you know, like I come from a background of research. I worked in research for years before I started working at the Suicide Hotline. And it's one reason why I think I've been really successful in nonprofit, because I feel like data science people and tech people kind of talk down to nonprofit and mental health people and act like they have all of this power of analysis and all this power of research. And as somebody who's been on the research end of things, I can tell you they are massively exaggerating the power of the data that they have. I wanted to touch on something you said about, you know, there were a lot of reasons why people were upset about this story. And there were a lot of defenses, like valid defenses, as I just found out. And there was one issue that I took up with it the most, right? And that's something that you said, again, this this kind of view of customer service where, Companies are using their lowest paid employees, sometimes not even employees, right? Sometimes contractors who are not getting the same benefits to be the front line of defense from losing profit. <laughs> like, and this thing, this system that is already so unfair to the people within it, for that to be, you know, the, the grand use of like conversations of people in crisis that's, you know, that thing where it's like, wow, what a, I don't like that prism, you know, I don't like, I don't like what that piece of glass has done, you know, it's transformed people's very dark, very personal, even if it's not dark, it's private, private moments when they're reaching out to someone and saying, uh, you know, through some Rube Goldberg machine, it's going to help someone get a refund issued sooner than they would have the month before. And I'm like, what? Like, what do you, what kind of, what, you know, I don't, that's it. <laughs> like, what kind of bizarre alchemy is this? I wanted to move on again and just understand, right, because we're talking a lot about your past work. Uh, you've, you'd helped Crisis Text Line with their training program. Uh, you've 
you've worked and built up a volunteer workforce of your own. And also you have this experience as a researcher and understanding, you know, what is good data, you know, what is reliable data, research grade data. Just kind of broadly here, how did your suicide prevention hotline handle data privacy? Yeah, that's a good question. Because most of our contact was over the phone and we, from the start, from as long as calls were capable of being recorded, we decided never to record calls. And I think maybe it was an easier decision when that decision was made because there was no such thing as this kind of like massive computerized data analysis. The data that we collect on the suicide hotline was all phone-based, right? So it's much harder to say, well, if you retain this data, we can do analysis on it. So really, the only use of the phone calls that we had if we were recording them would be just for people to listen in kind of voyeuristically. So we just decided that is not going to make anyone feel safe, and that is our priority, so that's not what we're going to do. But as soon as people were starting to take conversations through text, it was much easier to imply that this data would be extremely valuable and that it could be analyzed by machine learning. You put it into the computer and the computer spits out wisdom about how the human soul functions and everything's great. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so we never really had to worry about that. So most of our data retention was for two purposes. It was for internal evaluation and for just keeping track of things in case someone came back and tried to sue us. You know, in case somebody said that our emotional support was so ratchet that they were put into an increased crisis or somebody somebody they loved mm-hmm. to an increased crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. And then at times there were researchers who would listen in on our calls just to find out if suicide hotlines were effective. And, you know, the question, are they effective? I don't really know. Like, it's a really, really complicated question to ask. All I know is that when I spoke to people on calls... It was a sacred connection. Like it was a connection completely based on you are a human being. I am a human being. And we want one another to be in this community. You know, people would just call in trying to connect to another human. So few calls were actually people who said that they were at any risk of taking their own lives. They were lonely. And that is a sacred thing. Um, So, yeah, we we didn't really have the same issues when we did start taking texts. Again, we only kept the data for reference. If anyone made a complaint later on, we didn't use it for training because we had a lot of intuition on how to train by actually doing the work and having conversations about the work and referencing the work of other researchers and other experts in clinical psychology. But one thing that you mentioned was that because of my background in research, I have a different vantage point of data collection, what you can actually do with data. And something I noticed at my suicide hotline when I started volunteering there was that on our database, we did collect like a little bit of data for each call, right? We asked what line it is because we actually answered a lot of different phone lines, a lot of different crisis lines. We asked just whatever first name the person shared, phone number, if we had to call them back in an emergency a little blurb about how we would describe the call. And then there was like a section of checkboxes of call themes that you would just like click on if you're like, okay, this caller was talking about grief or this caller brought up LGBT issues. And what I recognized when I started accumulating that data was that we hadn't had clear parameters for how that data was supposed to be coded. And I knew from research that clicking grief could apply to some people that the caller themselves was grieving, but maybe they were supporting somebody else who's going through a loss 
or maybe they're studying grief. You know, there's so many different ways that this, different things that this could mean. And when I started consulting with Crisis Tax Line, taking texts for them and helping them develop their training, they did the same thing. They had all these little check boxes where counselors would just click on which, which themes were on the call. And because they were saying they were a database organization, I thought that they would be training their volunteers on how to code this data. Like, what does it actually mean? Should you click grief only if the person you're talking to is grieving or if they bring up grief at all? Do they have to say grief directly or can you intuit it based on the implications of what they're saying? There's no discussion of how to code this data. And I, I suspected that they just stopped collecting this data at some point, but I reading their blog earlier today, no, they're still using that data and they're still acting as if it's reliable data. And I doubt that they ever emphasize coding data and training, nor do I think that they could actually accurately assess the accuracy of the coding. You know, when I was coding data in college, we spent a year just practicing coding data that we couldn't even use in research just to make sure we had an accurate code for people to actually start doing the research afterwards. So the data that they're collecting in this way, they're making a lot of assumptions about how valuable it is or how accurate it is. So it doesn't surprise me that eventually they had to start relying on their actual transcripts compared to the metadata that their volunteers were collecting. I was going to ask, you know, how we could assume that they're not training their volunteers to accurately and rigorously code data. But it sounds like the answer was in there, which is that like it takes it takes like a year to understand that. Am I getting that correct? Totally. Yeah. And when we had researchers from universities and from, you know, expert research and evaluation consultants, they actually focused on coding. And there was a lot of discussion about what data means what and keeping the data clean. And some data, like when an organization came in and monitored our calls to evaluate their quality, they recognized that I think it was something like 70% of the calls they monitored, they couldn't use that data because of confounding factors, whether or not, you know, they were trying to do analysis on our actual calls with people in crisis, right? So that means that they had to dismiss all of the data from third-party callers who weren't in crisis themselves but were figuring out how to help other people, because that's a very different data set that they would be coding them. They had to figure out, frankly, if some of the calls were prank calls, or sex calls, which I got a lot, you know, people acting like they're trying to get emotional support and then they were masturbating, which I'm sure Crisis Text Line got a lot too. And then they had to figure out whether or not they kept using that data or whether or not they omitted it. Because who could tell whether or not this is a person who's in distress or this is a person with some really unusual fetish. So this data is really, really complicated. And by acting like it's some reliable and consistent set is very confusing to me. And when I read their blog, when I read all their posts about the realizations they made from their data, I see over and over again, there doesn't seem to be any actual realizations from this data, partially because I don't think it's a very useful data set. It has to be cleaned and interpreted in some qualitative aspect by people who are prepared to look at and interpret this data for it to be useful. So I spoke a bit at the top of the episode, right, about something we've already discussed here, right, which is Dana Boyd's essay, like her reflections on what happened and what went wrong. And I think it's such an important thing to talk about, too, in like more depth, because we don't often see like a distillation of this depth 
from someone involved in something. Like, it's just rare. Like, if, you know, Google gets into a privacy scandal or if, like, Facebook does, like, what you're going to get at most is, like, two weeks later, like, a thousand words from Mark Zuckerberg and none of them say, I'm sorry, or none of them say, I made a mistake. And none of them are like, here's what went wrong. Like, it's just going to be like, Facebook is the best. Um, And this was a little different in that there seems to be some remorse, you know, from Dana. And I also, I think it was important to read it because for me, at least, I read some of the things she said and I actually, I like, I, I kind of understood some of the quandaries. Like, I remember when I was volunteering, I dreamt, right, of like, of a perfect system where we could use data, like we could use it. And I remember thinking like, wow, like, wouldn't it be wild if we one night or one week we were getting a lot of calls from high schoolers of this one high school and those kids were presenting as even low risk right wouldn't it be wild if we could send a message somehow to i don't even know to who i don't know if to parents or to teachers or to the school and say hey a lot of the we're getting we're getting calls we won't say how many but we're getting calls from students of this school who are presenting as suicidal. Maybe, maybe folks like take a look at this, like, like consider it. And the reason I also dreamt up of that is because like in the Bay area, right? There's this school in Palo Alto, a uh, gun high school, which like has suicides. Like it's, it's a thing. It's a known problem. There have been stories about it. It's an insane thing to say. I, I understand like the sentence itself, this school has a suicide problem is such a, like, what are you talking about? But when I went to grad school, I went to grad school not too far from there. I think there were like two suicides within that school year. And that's, that's a lot. Like, that's, that is a ton. That needs to be addressed. So I had, I had these similar concerns as well. Like, I had these th- similar thoughts one time when I was like, what if we could just do this? What if we could, what if we could help more people than the ones we're directly speaking to? And I think I used to have that that concern until I just started doing the work more frequently. And then I was like, oh, our, you know, I'm not saying that I don't want to help people who aren't calling the line. I'm just saying that when you start talking on the line, the priorities become so obvious. And so this is a really long-winded way of me saying, when you read Dana's piece, right, did any of her concerns resonate in the same way? So, I mean, to speak to your point directly about using hotline data to better help prevent suicides in schools, a lot of research has been done on how to prevent suicide in schools. And or the suicide hotline where I used to work, we did training with high schoolers throughout the city. And in fact, with, um, I did trainings with children trapped in juvenile justice for how they can notice signs of suicide on one another and give support to one another because they were too afraid to bring these things up with their parents or guardians. And what's interesting is we had a pretty low call volume from young people when I started, but the more that we did this and we had a really effective trainer who did this, Taylor, our call volume with youth quadrupled. And I think that there's this assumption that we have the data because people are already reaching out and we can use it to figure out how to help them. But I think the reverse was often true is that we had to have direct human conversations to get people to be willing to use this service where we would 
you know, quote unquote, get data and figure out how to help them. But there's been tons of research on what to do in schools and, and gun especially. I mean, gun was a gun was a school that we talked about a lot and like what was going on there and how it fit into current models of suicidology and what steps or missteps the administration was taking there. So I think that there's this other piece that Dana doesn't talk about at all in her piece, which is that one of the main failures of Crisis Tech Line was that it tried to be a national organization. The reason why the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline avoided all of the issues that Crisis Text Line has endured is that instead of saying we are going to be one centralized location where we take all calls across the country, or we are going to have volunteers throughout the country that we monitor remotely, instead of saying that, they said there are all of these suicide hotlines that already exist and doing good jobs locally. We are going to create a mechanism so that calls that people don't have to look up the number to their local hotline. And instead, they just call this one number and it will route to whoever's local. And there's huge benefits from hotlines being locally based because they are aware of the resources that are there. And, you know, this is one problem that happened all the time at the hotline where I worked, where we wanted to send the police as infrequently as possible. We want it to be an extremely, extremely rare occurrence. And that's easier in San Francisco when we know that there are alternatives to the police and we know what those alternatives are, how they work, and frankly, who runs them. We know the first names of the people who run that organization, who provide those services, compared to just trying to provide services or providing intervention in Oakland or Berkeley. I don't know. They're, they're across the bay, and I don't know intimately who's providing those intervention services. Crisis Text Line was trying to say that they were able to provide resources and understanding of community across the country. That's going to just inevitably make it that they're not providing services as good. So if we want to know and be able to communicate with our local community about the patterns that we're seeing on the line and how it might impact them, the answer isn't to have a huge data uh, national data set. The answer is to have community-based programs that are small, intimate, and aware of the people that they serve. Tech is constantly trying to replace human connection because human connection is expensive. But human connection is what keeps us going. We ha already have communities that are functioning. Put more money into that rather than trying to act like you can fix our issues. In my exploration of what the scandal is, the only people who were making any sense to me when I was doing reading on this were the volunteers who talked to Politico. Like they, they got it. They like understood what the work was, understood the nuances of the work outside of the hype or the marketing. You know, I think suicide hotlines and crisis text line as well are really mysterious, partially because of the kind of heavy cachet from even just the word suicide. And I think that when people hear that, their brains just shut down. They don't know what to do with all the surrounding information. And they assume that there isn't tons of research done that they could consult if they have questions. There is an annual conference of suicide research. There's the Journal of Suicide and Life-Threatening Behaviors. The American Association of Suicidology runs accreditation programs for suicide hotlines throughout the country. There is a wealth of information. And coming at this as an expert of data security without speaking directly to practitioners is wildly irresponsible. Yeah, no, I understand. I wanted to wrap up here. Again, sticking on the same point, at the end of Dana's piece, uh, she presents a few open questions, right? And I want to focus on just one of those. Uh, she asks, 
What is the best way to balance the implicit consent of users in crisis with other potentially beneficial uses of data, which they likely will not have intentionally consented to, but which can help them or others, right? And so what I think this question is just kind of asking here is there are tons of ways that we could use caller and texter data, right? But it's not necessarily data that they've said verbally, I consent to the use of this data. And so how do we know, how do we decide when something is no longer ethical, right? Like where do we draw the line in the sand and how can we be certain about that line? And this is the last question, but this could this could go on for an hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I've foolishly put this one at the end here, but I did want to try and just kind of understand it because I think that's the kernel, right? That Dana's trying to work through is where there are things that we are given in our role of support. And it's not that we are expressly given them, right? We know who calls us. We know when they call. We know if they are someone who calls every single day. We know if they reach a call limit every day. We know what their name is. We know what their pet's names are. We know all of these things. And if there's a way to use those things to help other people, I understand the urge to be like, well, if this helps someone else, someone I've never even met, someone neither of us has met, I mean, as long as it helps, does, isn't that a good thing? And so, again, that question is then, where do we draw the line? How can we decide when a use of data is no longer ethical? I think talking about this from the perspective of the consent misses the point. And I, I understand why that's an attractive fulcrum to, to try to use, but it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's just such a wide open door. Like what is consent to use your data for research? Like you're saying, I trust you doing this to help people, but there are so many different definitions of what the word help is. There's no way to accept this data and use it for for-profit services where it will be ethical. There's just no way because they want to collect the data and figure out what to do with the data later. If there would be some sort of ethical consent, you would have to say exactly how the data would be used when it's collected. It's just, there's no way for them to say, we want this data from a nonprofit and we are going to use it ethically in some way later on without naming what that way is. Do you think that applies across the board? Like for all suicidal prevention services? Like, does that apply also for like mental health services? Like, I love how simple it is. And so I want to like tease it and test it out, you know, because sometimes, right, sometimes like a big question like that, there's so many ways that we can be like, well, in this case, it's okay. In that case, it's okay. And this one's not. But then we'll let's build some like rules and like, then let's build some like guidelines. And if it does X over Y months, then Z must occur. And instead you were just like, no. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> Why are you saying you need to do this? That's the thing is that they're, they're acting like there is a social good, that there, there must be, there must be a social good somewhere in here. But seriously, what is it? Tell me what it is. Like, maybe I'll reevaluate it if you can tell me how using this data is different from using all of the other data that's been collected about suicide prevention. And I just don't see it. How is other data about people who are just trying to get therapy more or differently valuable than all of the research that's being done on therapy? And I think that they're thinking like, okay, well, it's like more 
there there are less confounding variables because participating in a study changes the results of the study. I understand that, but I really don't think you're going to be getting different data in this particular situation. Like, I, I think that you need to actually have an intent before you start collecting any data and you explain why that intent can't be met by the enormous data set that we already have. Don't just wait until later on to say what your intent was. Courtney, that's all I have. I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. Thank you so much, David. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Carrie Parker about de-googling his life. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.